0: Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the desert, prepare a way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, and the rugged places plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of, the God, of God stands forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. His arm rules for him. His reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of their hand marked off the heavens? Who's held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains in in scales, or the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord, or instructed him as his counselor? Who did the Lord consult to enlighten him, or who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge, or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom then will you compare God? To what image will you compare him? As for an idol, a craftsman crafts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman and he sets up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught. He reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground, than he blows on them and they wither and whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the Creator and not be faint. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, without knowing it, Richard uh, stole my opening gambit, that stuff about Happy New Year. Um, So uh, I'm a little bit stuffed there. But uh, that's all right. He didn't know. There's uh, nothing he could have known. He was out with kids groups this morning as well. Um, He does promise me that he listens back to my sermons. Um, uh, uh, But who knows? Who knows? Um, But yes, so he talked a little bit about the idea that Advent is the start of the the Christian calendar. Advent, the word basically means coming. Um, So it's it's a word that's really about waiting. We start the Christian calendar by waiting, Um, waiting for God's rescue, uh, which of course is is what we start to celebrate at Christmas. Christmas. And in many ways, actually that's the fundamental posture of the Christian life um, Arguably, the whole Old Testament is one almighty weight um, after the opening chapters which the, the sort of um the stuff that goes before the credits um, the, the 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 movie really opens up on Abraham um, and God promising to Abraham and he basically says, you know we we all know that this world is." is broken because of sin, um, but I am going to make you a blessing to the whole world through your descendants. Um, are, you are going to be the conduit of me restoring all of this uh, and renewing my kingdom. And then we wait, and we watch the story unfold, and we watch all the dysfunction uh, uh, in, uh, in all the various parts of the story. And we see, in some ways, uh, a, in the broadest possible terms, a slow and steady decline of the people of Israel. Um, it's just an almighty weight. And actually, uh, ultimately, this candle dwindles and dwindles and then feels like it's been snuffed out altogether by the end of the Old Testament. And then it goes all very quiet. And it's not until... Uh, until the story of Christ coming, that finally the wait is over. That is what Advent uh, is about. It's that wait. But it's a wait that we also experience for ourselves. Even though Christ has come, we await his second coming. And that still lies ahead. So that is part of what we remember. So I suppose uh, the question would be, what are you waiting for as you uh, start to see the end of 2017 and Christmas lies ahead. I'm, you, I don't know if any of you have had a mince pie yet. Of course, they've been in the shops for, what, I don't know, three months now already. Um, but suddenly, Christmas feels like it's upon us. It's that time when we maybe look back and we look forward. Um, what is it uh, that makes you fearful about what lies ahead? What is it that makes you fearful about what 2018 might hold for you? What is it in your own personal life um, inside and outside, in your family? What is it? uh, In the whole political sphere, uh, there's a huge amount of turbulence, isn't there? Um, What makes you afraid? Uh, What is the rescue that you long for from Christ um, this Advent? Um, Isaiah 40 is really a story about God's rescue. Um, the, The whole theme, I suppose, of the book of Isaiah could be summed up in the words ruin and restoration. Um, and, it's, and, it's a, and it's a story, let me give you a little bit of context for where Isaiah comes in the, in the story of the Old Testament. Um, it comes relatively late on. Um, the people of Israel are well into this decline of disobedience and actual judgment from God for their failure to be the conduit of blessing that he had commissioned them to be. Um, and uh, it, eventually uh, the, the kingdom of Israel splits into two. There's a sort of War of the Roses thing that goes on a couple of generations after David, um, and these two kingdoms carry on their slow decline. Um, and Isaiah and all the other prophets basically find themselves going, look, turn back to God or you will be judged for uh, your rejection of him. And that is going to be an, an almighty, calamitous judgment. Um, and actually, what you see during the time of Isaiah, uh, in the northern kingdom, which is what we call Israel um, in the Old Testament, they, are, they get obliterated. Uh, they get obliterated by the Assyrian Empire. Um, and Isaiah, in some ways, then turns his attention to the southern uh, nation which we call Judah, and says, you know, you also need to turn uh, because you also uh, are, are going to find yourself overrun by the enemies. You will be carried off to exile in Babylon, um, is, is, the, is, his, is his warning. Um, in chapters 38 and 39 of Isaiah, uh, there's this story about King Hezekiah um, it's a fascinating story I'm not going to pick up on very much of it but the, the key element is that Hezekiah knew that he was really a puppet king for the Assyrian Empire if you know that bit in The Hobbit uh, when um, the stone giants are fighting and uh, there's all, you know a couple of hobbits and whoever else I can't remember who's in that party it's pinned against the cliff desperately trying to hope that they don't get caught by the sort of shrapnel of this fight that's going on do you, do you remember that bit? You know, if you've, if, if you've never read the book, I'm sure you've seen the film, um, or the films. Um, that's, that's a little bit what it would have felt like to be Israel in the ancient Near East. You have these almighty empires that are passing through, uh, and, uh, and you've got the Egyptians, you've got the Assyrians, then you've got the Babylonians, you've got the Greeks, you've got the Romans. Um, and Israel's this tiny little nation. And King Hezekiah is sick of being a puppet to the Assyrians. At this point, Babylon isn't that significant a power. But one of, these, uh, this, one of the uh, king's sons comes to visit him, and he starts this coalition with Babylon, with the Babylonian king. Uh, the hope being that he will be able to rid Israel of the Assyrians. Of course, what he ends up doing is empowering the very people who are going to obliterate his nation. His coalition does indeed ultimately overthrow the Assyrians, or it is part of, it's a small part of the Babylonians overthrowing the Assyrians. And then Babylonians turn on Israel, uh, on Judah, and they find themselves deported from their own land, taken off uh, to be uh, slaves in Babylon. Hezekiah has constantly had the message from Isaiah and other prophets that he is to function in in God's strength. He is to trust God uh, for a resolution amidst all of this, that God is greater than Assyria. He is greater than Babylon. He should trust God. Hezekiah takes things into his own hands and it comes back to bite him in almighty terms. And God allows this final carrying off to uh, Babylon to be the final act of judgment, really, for this people. This has been a constant mantra throughout Isaiah. It is always accompanied by the promise of restoration, that there will be this remnant that will one day return. Um, but, of course, it's, it's really uncomfortable language, isn't it? We, you know, when you start talking about judgment. That there's, it's very rarely a positive word in our world. Um, and I'm not going to delve much into it at this point. But I suppose I would simply argue um, that if there is a creator God, and if that God has created this world for a purpose, if he has created you for a purpose then you are somehow beholden to him. You are somehow, you don't get to live entirely on your own terms. Uh, and if you do, it feels to me reasonable that by rejecting the, the plan that God has for your life, you get excluded from that wonderful plan. Um, and I think that that's kind of the where the Bible seems to land in terms of this idea of judgment. It's not pretty, and it's really tough. Um, But that is what we see going on uh, within the decline of uh, the people of Israel. Um, Isaiah chapter 40 jumps forward about 100 years from Isaiah chapter 39. In terms of the history... The the frame uh, shifts quite dramatically to the latter stages of this exile. So the people have been carried off, um, and they're sort of you know, a number of them are second generation, uh, you know, from Babylon now, Um, uh, but they are still they are still you know, a slave people. They are and they are longing to get back to their land, and uh, and this is the beginning of God sort of saying you will go back. Like I say, he says that several times within the first bit, accompanied by the sort of aspect of judgment. But you'll, from chapter 40 onwards, there is this promise of God's rescue and restoration, which did in fact come. They did end up getting uh, back to Jerusalem, but it was by no means uh, the, sort of the fulfillment of that ancient promise of Abraham that they are still looking for. Um, in fact, it wasn't even what they had had before they were, they were deported. Um, it, was, it was a shadow of all of the things that they were looking for. And again, with our hindsight, we can say that it wasn't until Christ that the rescue that's talked about here really came to its fulfillment. So on one level, there's this massive jump um, in the chronology Uh, We're starting a very new phase. The the context is the depths of the exile and the longing for God to rescue them and take them back. From a literary point of view, there's no division here at all. 39 carries straight on into 40. In fact, you know, the whole idea of uh, chapters is a relatively modern invention. We are supposed to read chapter 40 with Hezekiah's trust in himself and in human solutions, ringing. In our ears. And really, Isaiah says, well, uh, This is, that is not the way to respond to God. That is not the way to wait for his rescue. Do not take things into your own hand. Trust God. And this is why. And then he starts this almighty poem uh, that gives us a, a sort of introduction, I suppose, to why it makes so much sense to trust God for our rescue. It's a poem in some ways that asks us, where do you go when you feel afraid, when you feel intimidated by what lies ahead? Don't go the way of Hezekiah. Look at the greatness of God, because when you see the greatness of God, you see yourself in relation to it, and you see your enemies in relation to it. Look at those opening uh, uh, verses, 3 to 5, top of page 724. In the desert, prepare a way for the Lord, make straight the wilderness. Uh, in the wilderness, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. God swoops into the story on this almighty bulldozer that flattens even the mountains. It's this enormous sense of God's power arriving on the scene uh, in what feels like this dark absence of God for the people of Israel. Look at the, look at verse 10, a similar but different uh, language. God roars in, this time not as a bulldozer, uh, but as a, a victorious king who brings uh, his, uh, his spoils of war with him. Do you see that verse 10? See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. His arm rules for him, and his reward is with him. And constantly throughout the, throughout the poem, he, um, Isaiah sets that sort of grand language against the language of what it means to be human, which is to be grass, to be fragile, to be uh, fleeting. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Uh, the wind from the desert uh, could scorch Uh, fresh flowers and grass extremely quickly uh, in that climate and so people would have known this as a very very familiar image for something that is very temporary and God says we are all actually like that. We forget that so much of the world that we live in is designed uh, to keep us from thinking seriously about the fragility the fleetingness of life but every now and then through Illness, through maybe the death of a loved one, we get faced with the fragility of life. And of course, it is at those moments when these words ring true. These are words that are said uh, at every funeral service, every Anglican funeral service anyway. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. It's ludicrous to trust in our own strength, little blades of grass who are not going to be around very long. Trust in this almighty warrior God, this bulldozer who can flatten mountains. As the poem continues, the scope gets bigger. Um, of course he can flatten the mountains. He made them. Um, the, the, the poem starts to explore the idea of God being the creator of the whole world. The fact that God is almighty in power is obvious if you just look at the mountains, if you just look at the stars. Um, and in the midst of that, there's this constant sense that actually he's, he's, he's had a plan all along and he knows what his plan is and his plan will not be shaken. Do you notice that in verses 13 and 14? Um, Who's understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him, as his counselor. It's a slightly absurd idea, isn't it, that God would need um, consultation on any of this. No, he knows his plans. He's solid on them. Um, So, you exiles sat in Babylon feeling weak and vulnerable. So, you exiles looking at Babylon and all its power and all its plans for you remember that God looks at that and he scoffs. It is nothing to him, even the, all the grandeur of Babylon, which we have little sense of because we don't have anything like that level of ceremony around uh, leadership um, in, in our experience of kings and queens and presidents and so on. Uh, but for them, they would be quaking in their boots at the very thought of the king of Babylon. And yet... Look verse 15. Surely the nations, whether it be Assyria or Babylon or Egypt or anyone else, surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs them as if they were fine dust. Verse 17. The nations are nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. There's this wonderful verse in verse 22 where he talks about how actually from his vantage point, Above all of the heavens, he looks down and all the people look like grasshoppers. I think, I think partly what he's doing here is he's picking up on a phrase in the story of the Exodus. As the people of Israel come towards the promised land and they send a, a reconnaissance team into the promised land to work out quite what's going to be involved in taking down uh, the armies there. The reconnaissance team come back and do you remember what the phrase is that they say? We felt like grasshoppers. In view of these enormous uh, armies and enemies that faced them, um, and of course God was true uh, in in the victory over them in that in that story, as He is here. Yes, you feel like grasshoppers, but actually, when God looks down, uh, He sees us all as grasshoppers. Verse twenty three and, and following. He brings these princes, these rulers, uh, to nothing, to naught. No sooner are they planted, they're actually just grass like the rest of us. No sooner are they planted, sown, and take root, than he blows on them, and they wither. This God, have you, I don't know if, you, uh, if you've ever taken a tape measure and tried to work out how wide the Pacific is. Um, I don't know if you've ever switched the bathroom scales on, switched it to kilograms and tried to put a mountain on there. Um, I don't know if you've gone to the Atlantic and you've tried to cup it in your hands and try and work out how enormous it is. Um, this is that is the absurdity of when you put us alongside this creator God. Um, that is the absurdity of trusting In ourselves and in our own strength that is also the absurdity of being afraid of humanity that is the absurdity of being afraid of the king of Babylon or the king of wherever else and yet in the midst of this extraordinary uh, imagery of power and strength this is not a God who rides roughshod over everything did you notice in verse 11 this extraordinary uh, little uh, change of imagery. Uh, Imagery of of kings being shepherds was very familiar in the ancient Near East, but look how he treats it. Um, He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. So this almighty creator God is also the God who cares for us in our brokenness, in our fragility, and carries us close to his heart. However, all of this doesn't mean that we get to have God as a sort of genie in a bottle uh, for our plans. We've talked about how uh, God's plans are clear to him. He needs nobody to consult on him. Um, And of course, arguably, what true success looks like would be to be part of God's plans. I don't know what, when you think of the week that lies ahead, what does success look like? In terms of Isaiah 40, success looks like the glory of God in our lives and in the lives of others. As this bulldozer comes flying in, flattening the mountains, the result is, verse 5, that the glory of the Lord will be revealed and everyone, all mankind, will see it together. It's this reminder of a victory that is far beyond us um, and yet a victory into which we get included. Us, in our fragility, get invited to be part of something that will last forever, the glory of God. It's not about you. You uh, will be gone soon in earthly terms. It's about God and his glory. Um, When we come to New Year, we generally make New Year's resolutions. And uh, there's a couple of weeks in January where People wake up in the morning, and they do actually get to the gym, and the gym is bursting with people uh, for, about, yeah, for about two weeks. Um, um, and then the, the, the lure of kebabs wins, and that's where we all find ourselves. Um, but the New Year's resolutions, are, we start our year with this moment of self-actualization, uh, whereas the, the, the ad, Advent, the start of the Christian year, starts with this empty, waiting For God. Now, actually, of course, uh, psychologists uh, get very jumpy about this dynamic within the idea of faith. It's what's called deferral. Deferral is uh, is when somebody uh, is incapacitated uh, and unable and unwilling to sort themselves out because they've deferred responsibility to somebody else, and that is that's a common psychological problem with people of faith that God gets deferred to and you and we sit around passively waiting but of course actually if you look at this passage yes there is a sense of waiting yes there is a sense that that what assails us is beyond us and is not beyond God and therefore we are it makes all the sense in the world to wait for him and his power to rescue us and yet Have you seen how the landing place of this isn't us as passengers, but us being strengthened to participate in what God is doing? Look at those final few verses, 27 and onwards. Um, I'm sure you know that feeling of God being completely invisible in uh, in what we are experiencing. Why uh, My way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by God. But Isaiah's response is The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, he will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. And listen here, this is this is why it's not deferral. He gives strength to the weary, he increases the power of the weak. Even youth grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. I don't know what this week looks like for you. I don't know whether the the, the power of God in your life will look like soaring on wings like eagles, uh, or whether it will look like running and not growing tired, or whether it will look like the plod of daily life, hoping that you don't faint. But amidst all of those, God empowers us to be his presence in the world. He empowers us to be vessels of his glory. He invites us into his great and almighty plans. And he does that even for these exiles as they look forward uh, to his rescue of them. Chapter 40 begins um, discussion of the, 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 the suffering servant what we see is that there's hints here that start to get unpacked in the following few chapters about God being the king who, yes, is mighty and victorious, but travels to his throne through suffering and through death. And, of course, that is the king that we await at Christmas, that in the silence of uh, the birth of Christ in the weakness of this baby who is dependent on his teenage mother like um, any baby is dependent on their mother. That baby is the almighty God coming in, bulldozering through the mountains to our rescue. Let's maybe just have a moment of quiet um, and a chance to cast our eye over some of the imagery. You might want to just find one verse Um, one image in this passage uh, that you can grab hold of and take with you into the week that lies ahead.